Welcome to the GMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, everybody, uh, to this episode. We have a special guest. Before I introduce the guest, uh, let me remind everybody to please subscribe to the GMS Podcast if you have not already on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and on two more apps. We've added a couple more apps that you can catch in to the conversations here. And that is on the Android app. Uh, it is called uh, CastBox. It is the highest, one of the highest rated um, apps when it comes to podcasts on your Android. And you can also catch it on the Overcast app if you are an Apple or iPhone user. Oh my god, we're getting around. We're getting some real estate here. This podcast is growing. You can help this JMS podcast grow if you want to donate at the uh, Patreon account. Go to the JMS podcast website at jmspodcast.com and there will be the donate button and anything helps. There's a, a link that will take you straight to the Patreon account and uh, I would very much appreciate it. It, it would help um, keep this podcast going. We have... Uh, uh, our expiration date is long past due. Uh, it is a big surprise that this podcast is even uh, going on and strong. We're still going strong. Um, but it's getting to the point where uh, we're coming at the end of the season. And we got plans for next season. And um, yes, anything helps. Any donations helps. You can email me for any reason at all at jamspodcast at gmail.com. I love to take an email. So I love to respond to them. And sometimes I even read them uh, here on the air. Can I say that? Are we on the air? It's not, we're not really live. Again, you can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Also, I have a special announcement, and that announcement is that uh, the Cafe Frascati Comedy Open Mic on Wednesday nights from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., which I host on a regular basis. We are doing this new thing at the um, end of every month, so the last Wednesday, is dedicated to women and LGBTQ performers. It'll be a lot of fun. Please come on out and support. And if you yourself, you know, you're like, hey, I want, I want to try comedy, but I don't feel comfortable in the in a bar setting. Well, come on out to the cafe. Uh, there's there's more lights, I suppose. It, it kind of feels a little safer, maybe. But saying that, please support any open mics. You know, there's uh, too few and in between. And I'm sure everybody would appreciate it if there's some kind of crowd. So again, once again, uh, every last Wednesday at Cafe Frascati is a all-women and LGBTQ night. Um, yes. Uh, no, I'm not going to get into it right now. I know some people um, have had disagreements about it, but it's going to happen, all right? You can't stop it. You can't stop it. It's happening. All right. Today's guest is Rachel Warner. Rachel Warner is a bartender, but she's much more than that. She is also a comedic performer of herself, a comedic writer, and she was here, you know, in the early ages of the comedy scene in San Jose. Right now, she works at the Caravan Lounge, which it itself has a great open mic on Wednesday nights. Everybody should check out. And she was one of the ones that initiated it, uh, of course, with the, with the help of Alta Walker. And it was great to have you here in the studio. We had a great talk. It was very inspirational, very insightful. And I just felt very uh, honored that she came on board. Uh, I was very nervous. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like you know, she she's um, she's well respected, and like I want to make sure I, it, it's a good conversation and everything is fun. And it, it got much more than that. We got we got pretty heavy. It got pretty heavy, and um, I think we both ended up okay. You know, I, it kind of reminded me that I should 
probably buy some Kleenex, you know, just in case. Uh, it's not the first time that I got emotional on the podcast, or a guest has gotten emotional. But every time it happens, I'm like, man, I wish I had a Kleenex, you know? It's just the right thing to do around here. All right, here is Rachel Warner. So what did you used to do around here? What did I used to do around here? I yeah. worked at Bennigan's on Great America Parkway for seven years. Bennigan's? What kind of restaurant is that? It's like a Applebee's or like a Chili's, like a chain restaurant, but they're mostly on the East Coast and like in Colorado. There's one here in California and I worked there for a really long time. Is it still there? No, it actually just closed down. Oh. Like just closed down. Were you bartending? Or? That's that's where I learned how to bartend, yeah. Oh really? Yeah. That's where you learned you picked up? I trained up, yeah. Trained. That's I mean actually if if you're gonna if if you're interested in bartending corporate places for as much whatever that you have to put up with in terms of corporate, you know, like having everything look a certain way or whatever, they they exhaustively train you like you need recipe knowledge and you need like knowledge on pars and knowledge on um you know just everything and they test you super hard um my i think my test had like 500 questions and if you missed three you failed it i failed it once and then i went back and aced it um, and then they have all this, these bullshit drinks on the menu, all this frozen crap, you know, like bellinis and like 20 kinds of margaritas and like, you know, stuff you would like never have to make anywhere else, you know, especially not at like the caravan. I would never make that stuff, right. but I know how to, which is nice. Yeah. It's a good foundation to have. It actually was a good foundation. They, you know, they started me as a waiter and then moved me to cocktail and then, and then moved me up to bartending. And, and after their training, I could get a job bartending anywhere. Mm. So. Yeah, especially when you're working at a corporate area, you don't have to worry too much about messing up, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not like a like a mom pops where every little penny counts. Well, I mean, I prefer working for owner operators. Right. I think corporate is like I don't know. They just they don't care. You're just a body, you know. Whereas like you know, I've been at the caravan for twelve years, and it's it makes a difference when you know that the money that you're helping to make is going to somebody's family mm-hmm. instead of some like big conglomeration. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very noble. Uh, I wouldn't say it's noble. It's just, and or, I mean, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like it's very communal, a commun- community right? based. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm definitely into that. Like keep, you know, keeping it in the village, helping everybody come up, spreading it around. Yeah. You know, it's important. Tip well, spread it around. Huh. <laughs> now that I'm processing it right now is that you're here. It's like the great Rachel Warner. Oh here my God, the great the Rachel Spot. Warner. You know, because there's something special about you in the in the comedy uh, circuit here in, in the South Bay, is because when people think of the Caravan, they think uh, me, me besides the host, they think of Rachel. Yeah, and the same goes for Woodhams. When you think of Woodhams, you think of Amanda. Pete, Pete, Amanda, oh, and Pete, Pete, the host, yeah, and Amanda for sure. So it's like the the regular bartenders are really part of the mics. Yeah, I would say that that's true. I mean, they're used often to you know for comics who are having trouble remembering their sets or want to engage the audience a little bit. You know, <laughs> give it up for the bartender. Make sure you're tipping. Give it up for Amanda. Give it up yeah. for Rachel. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of that. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, when I started doing stand up many, 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 many years ago, you know, it was it was the the hard rooms, the crazy mics that that made me better, you know. And Did you start stand up in the South Bay? No, uh yeah, well, kind of. I was 
I was doing this local TV show called, it was a total Saturday Night Live ripoff called um, Stand Up is Thursday Night. And it was um, sketch comedy and um, live bands and stand up comedy. And um, it was actually really, really awesome. The, Where was this at? Um, it started out um, out of a little theater called um, Big Lil's Comedy Cabaret, which is actually, it was on the same block as the caravan, just on the other side of Pizza Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that was a melodrama theater where they, um, you know, um, the villain and the hero, you boo the villain, you cheer the hero, and you throw popcorn at the stage. It's very and, soap opera-like. Exactly, and they started this live show out of their theater, and they eventually, with their own money, <laughs> moved it. We were on Cron for a year, Cron 4, so we were in... It was televised. It was televised, yeah, for two years, yeah. Like on local channels, or was um, it broadcasted, like... Yeah, Cron 4 the first year, and then UPN 44 the second year, but we were paying for the time. It wasn't... Oh, they weren't like producing it. They we we did the whole thing. The whole we thing. produced the whole thing, and the first the first year was crazy. I think we did thirty six ninety minute episodes, um, all original. So it's like a variety show. Yeah, it was a, it was yeah it was a variety show. It was sketch and and stand up and music. And so what happened was the show went on hiatus for a couple weeks, and one of the actors on the show, another one of the actors, this guy Eric Tom, excuse me, Eric Toms. He wanted to try stand-up, and there was this place in the Mission, um, and this was, gosh, this was like 15, 16 years ago. There was this place in the Mission, and there was, it was, there was an art gallery called The Luggage Store, and Tony Sparks ran this very, on Tuesday nights, this very loving, inclusive place for stand-ups to try their stuff out on other comics. So it was only comics, and mm. a, a lot of them were brand new. Some of them weren't. So you was know, it like a workshop? It, it, kind of like a workshop. It, it, it was like a show, except Tony was like, you know how Tony is. He's like, I actually never met him. Oh, you've never met him. I've oh, never like, met him. He's I like, n- I never had a chance to go to the laundry. Uh, oh, the laundry to the brainwash. To the brainwash. And it's yeah. closed now. Yeah, so I know. Crappy. I missed my chance. Oh man, that's too bad. Tony is like one of those people. He's like a beam of light that walks around like a normal human being. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just one of those people, and he's. One of his, you know, just, and this is not coming from him. This is just what I've seen is one of his missions is to, you know, bring young comics up in a loving, accepting environment. And that's mm-hmm. what the luggage store was. Um, and so I, I drove this other actor up and he did a set and I sat there for five minutes. And I was like, I can do this. <laughs> you know, that, that was it. I was like, I can totally do this. So right. I, um, I went home and I wrote some jokes and I got up the next week. And, you know, it's with stand-up as, it, you know, um, you either hate it or, like, you completely, as you know, you completely become obsessed with it and you just can't wait to get up. And that that was what well, happened, well, you, you know. Well, you can still hate it and still try it. Well, you yeah, still do but it. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you, you know that feeling when you get off stage is either of the, like, this crazy elation, like, yes, oh, my yeah. God, or, the, like, this yeah, like crushing, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, what but, yeah. What was, kind of material was your first... Uh, my first joke was, was very hack. Um, it was, I actually remember it and it's, you know, it's been written by, uh, you know, tons and tons of people. Of course, I didn't know that at the time, but I wrote, I wrote it my, you know, I wrote my version of it and it was like, um, uh, I lost some weight recently. I, I got a divorce and lost 200 pounds of bullshit. You know, I know it's so bad. Well, why are you so ashamed of it? No, no. I mean, it's. I'm just. I mean, I get what you're saying. It's a bit run of the mill, right? You know, for when sure. you're like self-deprecation at the same time. You know, the whole thing. But, but right. it's it's fine. It's fun. Right. Well, it's I'm, funny. 
I guess. It's I mean, a job done. It's start. It's start. You know, it was a start. It was yeah, a yeah. start. You got to start somewhere. Well, what's interesting so. is that you already had a performance background before you even did stand up. Yeah. So yeah. Where did that come from? Like, what kind of stuff were you performing? Um, well, I come from a performing family. There's uh, actors and musicians in my family. So we kind of came well, up. Let's dissect that. Lots of music and lots of performance and what, stuff. What did your dad do? Um, my biological father was actually a, um, a, a manager um, for a long time. He actually managed George Carlin for about 10 years. Wow. Yeah, in the, like through the 70s. He was George Carlin's manager. He was in the business. He was in the business. My mom was his uh, secretary, and they got together and had me and my sister Erin. Um, so from, from that side... Um, that's what he did. My my stepdad is a stage actor. Um, he does like local productions and stuff like that. My mother is a musician. Uh, my great uncle uh, was a pretty famous actor called. Uh, his name is Robert Stack. Um, um, what are some works he was in? He hosted a show called Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, and he um he was yeah. he played Elliot Ness in the original um, series The Untouchables on TV. Okay. And he was in the movie Airplane, which is like what I... That's a classic. Yeah, that's what I love him for. Who's his character? He played, that? he played, I think the name was Kramer. He, um, he was the guy talking, uh, Robert, what's his face, down to land. He was the guy talking oh. to him in the airport, you know, the guy that comes in and like beats up the Hare Krishna and yeah, the, the, takes off his sunglasses and he has another pair of sunglasses on. The, the pilot. The pilot guy, yeah. yeah but yeah. the guy that's on the ground. Yeah, yeah, The yeah, guy, yeah. they go to get him in his yeah. house, and well, the dogs oh, attack the that's guy. such a classic movie. I just watched classic it the, the last week. Yeah. I, I laughed my ass off when he's walking in you know, to the airport to go to the uh, tower. And he yeah. just along the way, you got all these uh, hippies asking for donations. He's just beating them up. That <laughs> yeah. was so ridiculous. Yeah, that's wow. Uncle Bob. Yeah. Yeah, he, he loved that. He also did uh, <laughs> he did a voice in um, Beavis and Butthead Do America. Uh-huh. My sister, my older sister and I were really stoked about that. We were like, Uncle Bob's Cool. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of music was your mother playing? <coughs> my mom, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> my mom does um, uh, folk and country and some bluegrass, um, and mm. she's been performing my whole life. Um, when I was young, little, little, she toured with the Charlie Daniels Band for a while, um, but other than that, just like um, local performances, lots of music, lots of original music, and um, and you know, just coming up with music in the house all the time. My brother, Taryn, I'm sorry, my brother Taylor is also a musician. Mm-hmm. He plays the guitar and he sings. My brother Taryn is an actor right? and he sings also. And uh, then... Did, did they try to push it on you? No, I wouldn't say push it. I would just say that that was kind of the environment that we were in. And when you grow up in LA, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an entertainment town. So you're right. surrounded by it anyway. You know what I mean? It's like... We, um, I grew up in Manhattan Beach, which is about like 20 minutes outside of LAX. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like in Hollywood or whatever proper, but lot, lots of people in the business, lots of, you know, it's a, yeah. if, if they, you know, if they did coal there, it'd be a coal mining town. They do entertainment. It's an entertainment town, right. you know, right. so you're just kind of surrounded by it all the time. At one point, did your, uh, did your family decide to move up here to the North, Northern California? They didn't. They're all in LA. Oh, um, so, so you decided. I, I did, yeah. I moved up here when I was um, 21. Mm. So I've been here for about 22 years now. What was happening at 21? Uh, I got married very young. Oh, wow. Yeah, and my um, my husband joined the Army and went to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey um, for a year and got a full 
Russian language submersion education for a year and then got out on a technicality and uh, went to work for customs in San Francisco. And so okay. we moved to Sunnyvale. And we were here for about a year, and then um, he didn't like it, so we moved to Vermont, and then we moved back, and uh, he left and I stayed. Oh. So. You, you, how was that transition from, like, full of entertainment town to, to, the, to, the, to the Bay Area? And this was, like, the 90s, right? This was, yeah, this was, like, early 90s, yeah, like, early mid-90s. I actually, there, were, there was actually a couple stops on the way. Um, uh, when I was 15, we actually moved to a town called Big Bear, um, which is about an hour and a half outside of Los Angeles. Uh, it's a little mountain town, a ski resort town. Um, uh, very, like, tiny, but then, like, tourists on the weekend or whatever. So we went from L.A. to that when I was 15. So I, was, I left actually left Big Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went actually to go live in Kentucky for about six months, and then we and then we ended up in Monterey. So. How, how did your family take it that you were getting married at a young age? Was that common? Uh, it wasn't well received. Oh, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, was your husband also a performer of some? He type? was not. He no. was not. He's um, he actually, uh, as far as I know, he still works for customs. As okay. far as I know, he's still a Fed. I don't know. I haven't I haven't spoken to him in a really really long time, or about him in a really long time. Yeah. But we we got married for uh, the complete wrong reasons. Well, you were young. Well, you know? yeah. That's a lot of responsibility he, for someone that young, you know. Yeah. He he was like, I mean, the the whole story is so, it's so weird. I don't know if you want to get into it. Yeah. Why not? But okay. I mean, only if you're comfortable with it. Oh no, that's fine. So so I I was I met my um my ex husband. Uh, we were working on a um, uh, a big camp, a big like uh, year round retreat camp. I would call it a summer camp, except people came up all year. Um, but it was Christian based. So it was like a Christian uh, retreat camp. Oh. So like churches would come up from Orange County or whatever. And then, you know, they there'd be two or three hundred people there and we'd run it just like a camp, you know, and then they leave. And then we did summer camps also. And he was the cook. And I uh, my friend Dana um, ran it. And she in exchange for 15 hours of office work, I had a place to stay and like free food and stuff, yeah. which was awesome at 19, 20, you right. know. It was out in nature. It was out in nature. Big Bear's beautiful. It was yeah. right on the lake. You know, there's kayaking and mountain climbing and like all the, you know, beautiful skiing. I mean, Big Bear's gorgeous. It's just, it's just beautiful. So I met him. He was he was um, working for LAPD uh, during the week um, as a consultant kind of slash student while he got his degree and um, cooking at this camp on the weekends. Mm. And so we met there and we got together and I, you know, I mean, if I'm going to be completely honest, I needed to get out of Big Bear. (laughs) That was way too small a town for me. And so he wanted to move back to the East Coast. So the plan was actually to move to Massachusetts, Mm. um, to Boston, Boston. big city, which is, I really liked the idea of like, huge city away from my family go on your own you know that girl you know you go whatever yeah. I wanted to audition for the Berkeley School of Music and kind of see where that took me and so you were into music then if you I was to study it. Yeah, yeah yeah I was into music music and acting and stuff my my whole life pretty much what instrument were you playing at the time oh singing singing yeah which I don't ask me to do right now because I'm <laughs> super sick but um but um so we were gonna leave in a week and then Shane said he sat me down and he said, I got a phone call from my mom. My grandfather in Kentucky is dying and they're putting him in a home and they need somebody to watch the farm for, you know, a couple months while they kind of try to figure out 
what's going on. And, you know, 43-year-old me looking back on that should have immediately said, no, <laughs> that was not the plan to stick, you know, to go out in the middle of Kentucky, which is a beautiful state, but not like the exact opposite of what I was trying to accomplish. Not, not the big city. Not the big city. So I, I said yes, and we shipped all of our stuff out there, and we went there and got there and discovered that Shane's grandfather, Clinton, did, did indeed have cancer. He was not going into a home. Shane's parents had not asked the rest of his family if we could come out there. They had no idea we were coming, and they thought that we were there to like try to get into the will like because his grandfather was dying but oh. it was some kind of like weird shady like i mean it was so there was a lot of tension and miscommunication immediately and i'm yeah. like completely out of my element and like you know i'm 1500 miles away from you know all my friends and family in the middle of nowhere in this town called fairview kentucky which is like off the bluegrass parkway like nine churches and one gas station kind of town you know right. beautiful but just rural you know like not where I wanted to be yeah and um and we were there for about six months um I ended up helping to take care of Clinton um uh before he passed and he he was the best part of the whole thing Shane's grandfather was a cool dude man he was awesome he was in his 80s just old school country been working his farm since he was three years old like not not exaggerating like You know, like flower sack dresses, like on the fan, you know, complete, you know, tobacco and some fruits and vegetables, whatever they could grow and sell, you know. Uh And so that part was cool. But no breakthrough with the rest of the family. No breakthrough with the rest of the family. It was weird. And it was, you know, when you're put in a situation like that where you are you are unwelcome and you have no control (laughs) over it. You know, I mean, I, I could have left. But like, I mean, it was, I was still trying to work it out with, you know, it was, it was weird. And I was young. I didn't know. But, but how did you process it? How, how, how did you look at it and be like, all right, I got to get through this. Like what really gave you the strength to continue on? Oh gosh. I, you know, I don't know. It was one of those things where when you're just in it, you're just kind of in it, you know? And I, that was not my first experience with death, but it was my first experience with, um, long-term terminal illness, you Mm -hmm. know? And so seeing that was, you know, it was very intense, very, very, very intense watching him waste away and, and, and a man of few words, so could not communicate his, his angst as it were, you know, I'd sit, I'd sit, he'd sit in his rocker and I'd sit on the floor next to him and I'd just stroke his hand, you know, and I would, well, I mean, he was cool. He, He was, he was worth it for sure. So, um, very long story short, uh, Shane's father or grandfather passed away and Shane decided to join the army to eliminate his college debt. And right. he came to me and he said, if, if we get married, you know, we'll both have insurance and I'll get paid more and like all this stuff. So, and you can leave anytime you want. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. It was not, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It wasn't like a marriage. It, it wasn't was like a business thing going on here. Right. How kind, guys were, kind of. How, how long were you guys seeing each other at this time, though? Uh, about uh, two years. Two years. By this okay. time. Yeah, by this time. And, yeah. You're like, I could tolerate them. Yeah. And I could leave in And we had long. dogs together. I mean, yeah. it was just, and, you know, it was, it was young and dumb. It was just young and dumb. And then, 
you know. But it sounds like you, you had some important life lessons that you kind of yeah. I went mean, <laughs> yeah. I'll never, I'll never do that again. That's for sure. <laughs> I will never. I mean, I don't think I'd ever get married again. But if I ever did, it would be for, yeah. you know, for love and mutual. You know, not because, mm. you know, and and so yeah, that that marriage you can see was like a was a pretty big failure. <laughs> So you guys come here to the to the Bay Area. You stick yeah. around. You mm-hmm. go to Vermont. Too cold in Vermont for you guys? Uh, I it was way too cold. Yeah, I and mean, it's beautiful. But you go outside and you take a breath, and it's like knives are stabbing your lungs. <laughs> we take the dogs for a walk, and they'd have a yeah. baseball of ice under each paw. You know, like they'd start stumble. You know, and then they'd have like. Um, and you know, it took an hour and a half to get to my job 20 miles away. It was yeah. windy, icy roads. I mean, it was crazy. But I mean, the reason we left was because I was so depressed. Right. I ballooned up to probably 250 pounds. Mm-hmm. I was super, I was so unhappy, you know, being squirreled away in this rural little community doing mm-hmm. exactly nothing of what I wanted to be doing, you know. So why back to the Bay Area, not back to LA? He got transferred back to SFO. He asked for okay. a transfer and he got, he got the the thing back to SFO and um and this time you I'm staying here cuz it sounds it yeah. sounds it sounds like you were looking for a bit of a of a stable foundation to you know yeah i think i was looking for a daddy or a cop maybe for sure to kind of like mold or guide me i mean i'm sure i have some daddy issues <laughs> um um but um before we went to vermont i mean if this tells you anything about the kind of person i was married to um, when we first moved to Sunnyvale, I, you know, I was waiting tables at that Bennigan's mm-hmm. and um, I smoked some pot with some uh, co-workers after work, after a shift. And, you know, one of them, this was back when, you know, it was all very hush hush or whatever. It's 20 years ago. But one of them had, you know, made one of those little aluminum foil pipes. You know what I mean? You make yeah. a pipe out of aluminum foil yeah. and they'd stuck it in my cigarette pack and Shane found it in my cigarette pack. And he turned me in to cut to customs. Yeah, he he drove up to San Francisco and he turned me into his boss, who looked at him like, "What a dickhead! What the fuck are you doing?" I I apologize. No, what a fucking. I mean, that's 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 the reality. That actually happened, and so and I stayed with him for like two more years after that. (laughs) We went to Vermont and then came back, and then I told him to get out. What what was the conversation of like? Why did you do this to me? And and uh, you know, I what I what I remember was him storming out of the bathroom and waking me up with the cigarette pack in my hand, and he was bright red, and he said, "What is this? Like, you want to talk about a dad moment?" Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's my cigarettes. And he pulled out the, the little pipe. And he said, what's this? And I said, that's for smoking weed. And he said, I'm turning you in. And he fucking left. And he drove up to San Francisco. And he turned me in. And then he came back a couple hours later. And then I think I called my mom like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I'm going to jail. What the hell? You know? Did you? No. Oh, no. Because no. his boss told him. He's like, what the fuck? Dude? Yeah. His boss was like, <laughs> Sue was like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, don't. Yeah, and, and at those times, it stayed on your record for yeah. very, very right. more connotative well, than it is now. Customs is federal. Oh, that too. <laughs> that like, too. You know, I mean, and it shows you how just a normal guy, you know, can become a Nazi real easy, real mm-hmm. quick, out of fear. He was so afraid that what I had done was going to affect him in some way, right? That he. 
instead of protecting me, <laughs> you know, his old lady, even though, even though it wasn't, you know, necessarily conventional marriage, you know, it so, was never a safe place. My marriage right. was never a safe place. Sorry to hear that. Oh, it's so, all right. So two, two years later, what was the breaking point? You're like, you know what? Um, like, they ain't going to work out no more. Well, I started having fantasies that he would get killed at work. <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would keep the insurance. I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then we, there was actually, there was a straw. We were driving in San Francisco. And uh, Shane ran a red light and got pulled over by a cop. And he flashed his badge and the cop let him go. And I was like, I need to get the fuck away from this guy. Right. This, is, this guy is not moral. He, you know, if it's legal, he's okay with it. He and, has no sense of ethics. Like, you know, it was just like, I mean, I had been so unhappy for so long, but then that was like. But that just made him a little more dangerous considering that, oh my God, like even if something does happen, he, they'll get his word more than over mine. Yeah. I mean, that part of it, because I mean, maybe because, you know, he's just, he was a, I shouldn't say just, he was a customs official, you know, mm. checking bags at airports and stuff like that. He did border, border stuff up in Vermont. So, like, in terms of, like, me, you know, thinking of him as a cop, that part didn't really enter into it. It was more like, it was more like, hypocrite. I, kn I knew that he was, he was a fucking hypocrite, and I yeah. knew that he, and he already had, had no problem with betraying me mm. to the man. Right. No problem but, at all. But he would do anything to save his own skin. But he would do anything to save oh his own God. skin. Oh, my God. So I was like... Uh, you know, and there's more details. I mean, it's, of course, you know, yeah. when I, whatever. I mean, it was never an abusive relationship or anything like that. But, you know, it was, it was him trying to m turn me into something that I absolutely wasn't, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, and so one day I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And he said, OK. And then <laughs> I said, I don't want any money from you. I don't yeah. want anything from you. I just I want you. I, this needs to be done. So what was the game plan now? You're, you're here. You're, you're still living in Sunnyvale. I'm in Sunnyvale. I'm, uh, I have my dog. And in a $1,500 a month apartment uh, 20 years ago. Um, wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, in Sunnyvale. They took Thomas Jefferson apartments. They take they took pets. I don't know if they even exist or still do. But so the rent was like way higher or whatever. Um, and then I um, was drunk for about two years. <laughs> And then, right. and then I mean, it's a fallout yeah, phase. Fallout phase, right? And then um, that same actor that I took um, to to do the comedy, Eric Toms, mm -hmm. he started working at Bennigan's, and he was one of the actors at Big Lil's Comedy Cabaret. And this is so I was like twenty five now, at this point, twenty five or twenty six, and he started bringing me around the cabaret, and I I fell in love with it. It was. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you try to make a business out of theater, it's a very hard thing to do. Dinner theater is also a very, very hard thing to do. Dinner theater. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Mm -hmm. They had their, and so they had, um, theirs was catered by Tony Roma. So it was like, you could have ribs and slaw and French fries and, you know, we'd go pick, you know, pick them up in the, when I eventually started interning there. Um, uh, you know, we'd go to Tony Roma's and we, you know, we'd have the orders. They'd already have the food and we'd get the Cambros and you bring it down and, you know, you could serve the food as long because we didn't have a kitchen, but we could serve food that wasn't prepared there. You know, that's mm -hmm. kind of the deal. Beer and wine license. And, um, so yeah, he took me to Big Lil's and I, I walked in and I, it was a feeling of like, just 
being home, just being in like the right place. Because in some ways it reminded you of your childhood, where you're surrounded For by sure. creative, talented people. For sure, but a lot of it had to do with um, the people running the theater, um, Amy Connors especially, and uh, Darren Home, who was her boyfriend at the time. Um, Darren, a <laughs> uh, uh, very interesting character, but he had uh, tons of energy and he could prope- he could propel a project to go very far um, to a certain extent. And Amy was um, a workhorse, um, creative and funny and sweet and, you know, mm-hmm. and and they're doing this dinner theater and they're doing it with community actors, you know, they can't pay the actors because they can't, you know, it's just not, um, it's not workable. So, so having a, pr- trying to do a product um, with people that are not getting paid has its own set of problems right and limitations <laughs> and limitations yeah um but there was some gold that came out of that room also and they you know when they start they had they had already started the sketch show by the time i had gotten involved it was it was still at the theater it was still just a live show on thursday nights mm-hmm. and so i kind of got in at the beginning of that and i i started interning at the theater um because i was actually going to move back home to la and um and i needed I needed time when I wasn't, where I had to do stuff, where I wasn't drinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I needed like blocks of time where it's like, okay, you can't be drinking right now because you've got all these responsibilities you have to do. You have to go to the theater and you have to make the popcorn and you have to pull these costumes and you have to set, you know. But essentially feeling productive. Something like, productive. I, I think exactly. that's the most important thing. Exactly. And then um, the sketch show, they pulled me in as um, floor director for the for the live show, I was one, first, I'm sorry, first I was on, I was a writer. First I was on, uh, at the writer's table. Mm-hmm. And then. How, how was that process like? Like, like, how, how, what kind of conversations and it was, spitballing ideas were you guys do, doing? It was really, really intense. Um, Darren and Amy ran the writer's meeting. Darren um, definitely had like a, a fear thing going with people where you had to have something every Sunday. You had to have something to bring to the table, you know? Yeah. And it was very competitive. And then they would pick, we, uh, how, uh, how we did it was, they would, we would pick two video bits to shoot and we would do three live sketches each show. So, you know, it's there's- like a full on production. Full on production every week, 90 minute show every week. Like, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was crazily intense. Yeah. It was, and again, you know, it was on a local level. Um, um, but there was some gold that came out of that show, for sure. There were some gems, and I, I definitely learned a lot. Darren was very strict. We had to have all of our scripts in, um, in you know, final draft form, mm, you know, script yeah. form. They all had to be... Super important. Mm-hmm. Super. And then um, we would read all the sketches, and then he would pick three. And it was like, it was almost like a lottery thing, you know? Yeah. So... For those two years, you know, I would work 40 hours a week at my job, and then I was putting probably another 50 or 60 hours a week non-paid into the TV show. Um, but you were doing it, I it think was, that group was doing it for the right reasons, though. Yeah, and it was it was one, it was very intense, and not everything went perfect, you know, some major bumps. Um, Darren cut off his finger at one point. That was Ooh. a very intense day, uh, and unfortunately, it was at the San Jose State scene shop. Um... Oh, and the UT and the University Theater. Mm-hmm. It was in the in the scene shop there uh, at, at the at the state school. He he cut his uh, finger off on a skill saw, 
And that, I think that brought up a bunch of problems for the university having to, like, have OSHA come in and, like, make oh, sure everything shit. was super safe and stuff. But a couple bumps like that. Losing um, <laughs> a finger here and there. Losing a finger here and there. <laughs> but um, we, we were on, like I said, we were on Cron for a year, and then we moved up to San Francisco for a year. Our studio was up at, at uh, UPN 44, like, off Broadway in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and that year we only did, like, 12 episodes. Um, and then ran out of money. Yeah. <laughs> there went the show, you know. Yeah. Like a- Amy basically cashed in her inheritance to keep the show going. Um, but but by the crazy. time it ended, you were already doing stand up. By the time it ended, I was doing stand up, and thank God because yeah. I didn't, you know. Once once the show ended, I was kind of rudderless and adrift, you know. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, started focusing, you know, exclusively on stand up and. Um, we ran a room out of that theater. We did a Wednesday night comedy show, and then um, Eric and I ran that together. And then um, after a couple years, the San Jose Improv opened, and um, Justin Charles Hollister was the guy kind of in charge of entertainment. He owns a club in San Diego now, uh, American Comedy Club. Yeah. Hey. Okay. I, when I was in San Diego, that. I passed by there. Okay. So Justin Charles Hollister started at the San Jose Improv um, mm-hmm. and then eventually moved there. So Justin Justin was actually, I knew Justin because he was moving sets on the TV show. That's how we met. He was like a stagehand um, because he was super into comedy and we had like actual comics coming through and stuff. And then when the improv stuff started, um, our friend Heather Courtney, I think was doing like taxes for them or something or some kind of office stuff and she brought Justin in and Justin offered me a monthly show at the improv you were producing yeah so I had a show there for about four years called unfiltered underground and it was it was me kind of trying to do what we had done on the tv show it was sketch and bands and comics and um uh, and I and I wanted it to be darker and dirtier. That's why it was called unfiltered. So like the bluer comics could get up and, you know, um, and it would, you know, give them a room. When the improv first opened, they were very clean and clever, clean and clever, clean and clever. Like Shannon Murphy would not have gotten to open back in the day. You know, like they right. did. They didn't let so you. It was very nineties like. Right? Very, very, very. It's not like that anymore, which is yeah. good. But well, like, what was the landscape, the comedy landscape here at the time? Well, you had roosters. Um, there was another club that I guess had been opened downtown and I can't remember the name of it, but that had been shut down already. So, I mean, it was honestly, it was, it was Roosters and it was the Punchline and, and, uh, Purple Onion. Um, and I think Cobbs was still open back then. So most, it was mostly in San Francisco. If you wanted to work out, if you wanted any, you know, if you wanted to get any stage time and if you want, you, you know, you wanted any shows, it was, it was largely San Francisco for, for local stuff. So when the in- improv came in, it was really exciting for everybody. Mm. No open mics though, or no showcases. Well, we had, the improv. We had a mic at um, at Big Lil's. They were ve- they were very few and far between. There was an excellent mic um, in Palo Alto at this place called the Rosen Crown, and Drennan Davis. I don't. I know he didn't start it, but he ended up running it for the majority of the years that I was there. Um, he's down in L.A. now. Um, but um, this room was, it was popping. It would pack out and they would all listen. Oh, 
it was incredible. I mean, it's like, to look back on it now, I'm like, nobody has a room like that. Like, that's, I mean, that's a godsend. It was a godsend, you know, yeah. and it was so good that all these great comics, you know, Kevin Shea and Andrew Norelli, Steve Maison, uh, Kevin Avery, yeah. all these guys that, you know, uh, Louis Katz, Moshe Kasher, you know, all these guys would come down. It was worth it to them to come down and hit this room. So the well, level of comedy at this mic was superb. Tony Diomko, like all these, all these great guys, you know. Um, and, uh, that was like the mic. And then, then, uh, this place down the street, Rudy's started to do a mic too. So, but still we had to drive to Palo Alto, you know, you had to drive, you had to drive. Like there wasn't really anything in the South Bay. So when, um, Big Al, uh, I guess Big Al and I started at about the same time with our shows, Big Al's Big Ass Show and Unfiltered Underground both started at the same time. And so that was good because it, it gave, uh, local comedy showcases, you know, um, not, not a mic, but showcases, you know, um, I paid my performers. Um, uh, and that was really, that was good for, for the scene for sure. Um, I ran a mic at Cafecito for a while. I ran, I mean, I want to say there were like five or six different places I was running mics, but you were a hustler. I was a hustler. Yeah. I was a hustler and, um, the meth helped, you know, (laughs) <laughs> the meth helped of course Ooh. you needed some feel right um but uh but yeah the um it was so yeah it started sparse and then you know pete munoz has been such a a huge part of expanding the south bay comedy scene um and being so supportive you know of other comics and did you meet him when he, when he was starting out yeah yeah i met him uh, i used to um uh, I used to pal around with him, and uh, Butch Escobar was uh, another cat I heard about, but never met. Yeah, Butch was uh, Butch used to work at the caravan, and he ended up being kind of like my my little buddy for a mm-hmm. while, and then uh, my little comedy buddy. And then uh, when I realized that I did not want to do my show at the Improv anymore, I gave it to him, mm-hmm. and he took it over, and actually was way more successful at getting people in the seats like I could only ever like fill the downstairs you know like I, I would get like you know how the improv is set up right you can fit what 200 people downstairs yeah okay so I, I would get like 75 80 percent of the downstairs filled when Butch took that show over he had people sitting in the balcony and stuff Oh wow! but he very quickly changed it from what I was doing which was you know trying to do this kind of edgy music sketch stand-up thing um, uh, and he turned it basically into, um, you know, Latino comedy night. Okay. Um, but was wildly successful at it. Way, <laughs> way more successful than I was. Uh-huh. And he kept the show for a, a couple of years, two or three years, I think. And yeah. then he, he let it go also. So, so how come, at what point did you stop doing stand up? Cause it's been a while. Yeah. I, um, I stopped doing stand up. Let's see. I stopped doing stand-up in about, I want to say like 2002. Um, I just, I mean, I never, I mean, if we're going to be totally honest here, I only ever got to the point of like local feature. I never toured. I never, you know, I never went on the road. I never, I just kind of had my show at the improv and kind of, would do like mics here and there and yeah I just started to do it less and less and less and then when I gave up when I gave up the improv show um, 
I would, you know, still do shows here and there, but it wasn't as consistent as it was. And it's one of those things where you wake up and like two months have gone by and you and you haven't done a show. And then two years have gone by and you haven't done a show, you know. Is it just that you lost interest? That you can no longer find that, you know, satisfaction in performing? Part of it. I mean, I think, I mean, there's a lot of frustrations when it comes to comedy, but I think the main thing thing about it is if you want to do it you're doing it <laughs> if you don't want to do it you're not you know so right. it's like Stephen Stephen King says writers right if you're a stand-up you're doing stand-up you know and I I didn't feel like that yeah. anymore so um and then you know I started doing shows again about th- three years ago but I've only done I don't know maybe 10 since then I have a show at the end of March I'm doing da- the Dave and Buster show Pete and Roy oh, Campbell nice. show yeah so I'll be there so I'll be working out for that um but honestly it's it's something I love I love getting that laugh I love when the room is with you you know and I I have certain I mean comedy just like anything you know there's there's just like anything there's a foundation there's rules you know there's mm-hmm. there's things that you can there's knowledge that you can pull on after doing it for so many times i.e. callbacks you know what I mean like certain certain ways you know rule of three certain ways you do stuff or whatever so I have that information and it's been very useful for me in a bunch of other stuff Mm -hmm. you know um, and in my writing also and I'll always love stand-up and I'll always do like the random show here and there but that's probably not a, a career thing for me. But for I would say for about 10 years, I was pretty pretty gung-ho mm-hmm. on it. Now, I'm sure currently the, the scene here is a little different. Uh, what are some similarities and some differences that you feel uh, that, that happened at your time in the 90s here and what is happening now? Do you feel, do you feel like you're seeing history repeat itself? No, I think it's very different than now than it was then um for the for first of all there's a ton of stage time now like you can go into a place and not get three minutes you can get five minutes ten minutes which like back back in the day that was impossible your first set you got three minutes and that was it and then when they got to know you maybe you got five minutes you know there was like i said there weren't a lot of mics you know there's a lot of really really good comics out there looking for stage time another huge difference is the comics in this the South Bay scene. I'm not familiar with uh, San Francisco scene anymore, but the, these these comics in the South Bay scene right now are some of the nicest people I have ever met in my life. Was that a problem in the '90s? It was. I wouldn't say it was a problem. I would say it was. It was definitely more competitive and like you you couldn't. Well, yeah, it was a little bit of a problem, you know, because you couldn't you couldn't even tell somebody you got a gig without them saying like, "How did you get that?" Where did you book that? Who did you? It was very every. It was very like um, every man out for himself kind of a thing, and I I don't know if San Francisco is still like that, but I can tell you the South Bay is not like that at all. I don't hear anybody doing that shit to yeah. anybody at the mic. We're pretty pretty nice to each other yeah. for the most part, and like <laughs> lift each other up and help each other out, and that's like a huge huge difference. Uh-huh. I remember <laughs> I this one night at the Rosen Crown, uh, these two comics got into it. And um, I'm not going to say their names because it's probably a little embarrassing. They got into it enough to where they wanted to fight, like physically fight with each other. Yeah. But they they made a rule first uh, not to punch each other in the face. 
because, <laughs> because they had shows, you know? Right. So it was like the pussiest, like lamest, chest punchy back alley <laughs> fight I've ever seen in my entire life. There were body boxes. Yeah, and it was all over like just some bullshit like raised hackles about whatever you know yeah. I don't even know but it was you know so there was a lot of that back then and it's it's not like that now for sure do you find there's a bit more diversity in performers now than back then I I think there's more women for sure but it was always kind of a melting pot it was always kind of a melting pot I would say yeah maybe there were like more white boys back then um but not many more, not many more. There were, there was always, I, I feel like comedy is one of those, you know, inclusive places where it really does not matter. Nothing matters except, are you funny? Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the unifier. <laughs> if you're funny, you're in, you know what I mean? Like that's, I think that's what people focus on, at least maybe in this area. I don't know, but I, you know, I've been watching these, we've been running the mic at the caravan for four years now and I've. I've been watching these guys come up and I see so much growth and, you know, those, for me, it's really gratifying, especially, you know, the caravan, as you know, is a, it's a hard room. Oh yeah. I, every new comic, I said, you got to check the caravan because mm-hmm. that'll make a man or a woman out of you. Yeah, exactly. Like it's hard. Like they, they're, they're not hella dicks, but like you got to grab them or they're not going to listen, you know? And unfortunately, the sound, which is something I'm going to be working on, is getting some speakers in the back as well, because mm-hmm. I think part of part of the problem, well, in terms of talking, unfortunately, and I will say this is unfortunate, the main, the main problem with people talking in the caravan is the comics talking to each other. Yeah. And that's, I, that I'm, is I'm having the same issue for Scotty. And like a part of me is like, I don't know, should I even tell them to? Like, I mean, it's great uh, that in Woodhams they get yelled at by Pete. They're like, you know, shut up. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they, they, but for me, it's like, I don't think I have that kind of authority. You and know? it's a weird, it's a weird energy that you create when you're like, I demand you listen. You right, know? right. So, but in terms of the comics, it's like, it, you know, respect the mic, respect your fellow comic on stage. Outside is five feet away yeah. go outside and talk about you know whatever you know it's like um well but, it's interesting when you started at the caravans you, you get the television set there yeah. so people in the back who cannot see the person performing they could look at the tv right and that's why i want to add sound to that because i think if if we have speakers behind that it'll it'll make people be maybe a little more conscious of the fact that there's a show going on 20 feet in front of them yeah but i mean that but what i wanted to say about that is is you know when i watch a comic who gets up at that mic and he's constant he or she is constantly struggling and then one night they hit oh, oh my god and i the, fucking cried it's the, the, the last time i think i had a like a great fucking set at the caravan yeah was maybe even a month ago i remember little, that night and yeah you had a great set i was like fuck well, we're gonna have some jack-in-the-box we can go celebrate <laughs> and i was i was like two tacos. It, i was getting like mid-tears like dude i made everyone laugh at the caravan it was dude. like just think about being teary right now oh that's so but, awesome but it's that kind of a room yeah it's that kind of room where if you hit it it's like yeah. But, but the magic is that you have to bomb so many times. Yeah. Yeah. Because it makes it that extra special. It does. It does. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's a let, that's a let, the lesson, you know, and then when you hit that feeling, you know, I know how that feels for the performer because I've been there. So, you know, watching them elevate because once, you know, that's the thing about artistry. Once you hit a plateau. I should get more tissue boxes. Uh, <laughs> that's good. I like that. But once you plateau, 
and then you hit and you come up, well, you're never going to go back down again. You've already, you've come up, you've hit that, you've got, you've gotten past that hurdle and now all you can do is continue to go up. And so that's, that's really exciting for me, watching, watching people improve and work out. And there's, you know, there's people that are really serious about it and there's people that aren't so serious about it and that's all fine. You know, I mean, the lesson I feel like I learned there at Caravan, I'm pretty sure, you know, comics can relate is to. There's a point where you're like, you can't take it personal. Because mm-hmm. I think when you're starting out, you take bombing so personal. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. And at the oh. caravan, it's like, it's more like you really get, get it to you like that. You really got to go run with the mill. Yeah. You know, and that's why, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm not sure if you know this, but the caravan's the only real other place that I would perform sitting down. Because I'm like, I'm just going to brace myself for it. Like, yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but it's, it's that's I think that's a hard lesson that I learned. Yeah, okay. There, But it... When did you start getting involved at the caravan? Um, well, in terms of the comedy show, or well, actually, it's what, how about bartending? First? Oh, bartending. Okay. Well, I um, I got uh, fired from Bennigan's. Oh. Um, Can you say why? Uh, yeah, I was on meth, and I was um, like I told. I think I told you. Uh, we, you know, I was working 40 hours a week and then putting another 50 or 60 into the TV show. You weren't kidding about that, the math. I wasn't kidding about the math. That actually started just, I was just trying to stay awake and yeah. like get through everything I had to do. And like, uh, you know, it started out casual here and there. And then it went into like a, like a pretty much like a year long stint of like being on it, you know, at least a line a day. Do you feel like it started after the split? Um, which split? After your your husband, left. oh, I do, mean, do you feel as like as like a, as a way to um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not process necessarily, but to like to like cope with the pain. Cope with it, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, meth is. Um, uh, I had had it a couple times here and there. Big Bear has a lot of meth. There's not, you know, it's there's a big. It's a country little mountain town, and right. there's in in little mountain towns. The yeah. teenagers find empty houses, you know, the off-season houses, and they go party. There's nothing to do, you know. There's, in terms of, um, um, like, nightlife stuff for kids. Like, there's tons of stuff to do during the day. Skiing and, you know, outside activities and all that stuff. If you're not an outside person, you know, it's like there's two local bands. There's, yeah. like, you know, you can't go see live music. Like, the teen center sucked. Like, what, you know. So, that I mean, that's what people did is they'd go snowboard or ski all day and then find some some house that wasn't being used Mm. and go party and so and there's you know definitely a biker element up there too and so there was a couple times where I had tried it um but um I I don't so it wasn't like necessarily like a reaction to my marriage I think I was just like partying a lot I think I was I mean I you know maybe that was part of it but um but yeah it just all of a sudden it evolved into this thing where it was out of control and I, um, I left Bennigan's and I went to work at this place in Alviso called the Marina and everyone was on meth. The cook was on That's meth. All the here. bartenders were on meth. Yeah. The fucking, there was a meth lab upstairs in one of the apartments that the cops came and busted and like, yeah. I mean, it was gnarly. And I, I was like, if I don't get out of here. I'm going to die. <laughs> I need to get out of... I, I'm going to die. That was your rock bottom moment? That, I mean, yeah. I mean, it got... Well, yeah. I mean, it, it got it got that to the point. Yeah, I was... Um, I found out I was pregnant and, um, uh, and just froze like a mobile, like didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I walked into the caravan. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember. Okay, so I walked into the caravan 
this is a long time ago, and I, uh, my friend Megan was working there at the time, and I was like, please, just do you have, are you hiring at all? Do you have anything at all? And she said, you know, I think we're looking for, like, day shift on Saturday and Sunday. And so she said, you need to talk to Christina. And so Christina was the manager at the time. Um, she was the girlfriend of the owner, George, who uh, passed away eight years ago now. He was the owner when I started working there. And um, and she was a little, like, four-foot-tall Yaki Indian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was... She was uh, she was she was quite a character. She had a very very spotty past with pissing people off, but she liked me, mm. and she hired me. And um, the first day, my first day at the caravan was the last day I ever did meth, and I haven't touched it since. So twelve, twelve years and a couple months now. You went cold turkey on it. I went cold turkey on it. Yeah, yeah. She. Um, uh, I started my shift at 6 a.m. And, uh, and my this was my first training shift. And I walked in and I, you know, and uh, and she said, she said, here, drink this. And she handed me a shot of Jaeger. <laughs> and I was like, OK. And then she said, do you see all these bottles? And I said, yeah. And she said, these are all weapons. If you ever need to defend yourself, just hit somebody over the head with one of these. And I was like, where the fuck am I working? Like, oh my God. Right. And so I was there for about an hour and the combination of of being pregnant and being on meth and <laughs> the Jaeger was all a little too much for me. And I went into the bathroom and I started throwing up. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would say that was... That was the rock bottom. Yeah, right there. And uh, so Christina came in. I'll never forget she said, what's going on with you? And I said, I'm on drugs and I'm pregnant. And she said, okay. She said, and this is so, I mean, it's, it's such, it sounds like such like a cliched thing, but she said, okay, Rachel, I'm your mama now. I'm going to take care of you. And, um, things just got better. You know, I, I took care of the pregnancy. I was in no position to to be a mom mm-hmm. at all at that point. And um and yeah, I uh I quit meth and things just got better, you know. It was things, like a second chance. It was a second chance. And so yeah, the caravan is like very special to me. And um I know people I know it sounds weird to have such a connection to a place, but the caravan changed my life for the better. I've met so many amazing people. I've seen so many like killer performances, bands, yeah. and you know we've got this burlesque, you know, just all this crazy stuff. You know, I do the booking too, so yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, it it was there for me, and I I say it meaning the people that were in it. Bev, Bev was there for me. Who owns the bar now? Yeah, she's there for me in a big way. And Christina was there for me, and it just made it, I was I was in a place, and I, uh, my mom is awesome. I love my mom. I was in a place where I was so ashamed that I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, go to her. Mm. So to have this other woman say, "Hey, I'm gonna be your mama, and I'm gonna mom you through this," and right. and to, even though she was like a crazy little drunk lady, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was still like it was life changing for me, and it gave me. It made me not feel like such a piece of shit, 
you know. And not alone either. And not alone. I think and not alone. There's something special about realizing that you, there's someone looking after you and you're not alone. For sure. And like, and that was, and especially when you're feeling like you're the worst version of yourself, you know. So, you know, that was, that was a huge thing. And so I, I started working at the bar and I did day shift for a couple years and that was crazy because the hotel next door was open. Uh, oh, by the Greyhound mm-hmm. station. Yeah. And it was the cheapest hotel in um, San Jose. And, uh, you know, um, I think it was like 40 bucks a night or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you could not rent a room. Um, you could take a shower for $5. You could do your laundry there. Right. Even if you didn't have a room, which I thought was awesome. But there was a lot of fresh out of prison. There was a lot of prostitution. There was a lot of drug dealing. Transients. We, we actually hired <laughs> one of our best security guards, this guy Jason. Uh-huh. <laughs> we hired him. Uh, not Boner, by the way. This not was boner. a different guy. Different guy, yeah. We hired him. He um, he was actually dealing crack out in front of the bar. Yep. Now, remember, this was a long, long time ago. Uh-huh. And um, he struck up a conversation with our security manager, and he liked him enough to be like, okay, this stops. <laughs> you don't do this anymore here. Was it Phil at the time? It was not Phil, no. no. It, it was, was Butch, Butch, Butch Escobar. Escobar, okay. Yeah, Butch, was, Butch used to be head of security there. So, um, and brought him on and then brought on his twin brother and ended up having like this, they were great. They were there for years, you know, but I mean, it was just, it was like such a surreal place, you know, it was, it was rough and it was definitely like, you know, it was a lot different than it is now. Never had to use the uh, Jaeger uh, bottles. Never had to use the Jaeger bottle. My first (laughs) shift, my first shift, Uncle Dave almost threw a bar stool at somebody. Uncle Dave! Uncle Dave! That's right. Uncle Dave was there on my first shift. I love Uncle Dave. Uncle Dave's the man. He's Uh, the man. But yeah, like... I couldn't imagine a younger Uncle Dave at this this time. You know what? He looks exactly the same. I don't think... (laughs) I don't ages. No, I think he's just going to stay the same age forever. Uh, But like, to go... (laughs) To go from Bennigan's, where like, you know, it's super corporate and like, you know, you have to be like, oh God, it's just, you know, the four... There's just been, a, you know, corporate is so weird, you know, right. how you have to answer the phone and how you have to talk to the, t- to go from that place to a place where people are chucking bar stools at each other. Yeah. It was crazy. And like, so with the hotel, you know, people would just come in and like lay on the ground and go to sleep. People would be trying to like steal money off the bar or like I had serious, like people would come in with six or seven medical tags, uh, you know, on their wrists. And uh, mama's rule was if they're 21 and they have money, serve serve them them, unless they're too drunk. (laughs) So I I mean, I was calling the cops three times a week on day shift back then. Yeah. I mean, it was gnarly. And the minute the hotel closed, I mean, all of that changed. Mm. Um, um, When did it close? It closed, gosh, a long time ago, about... At least ten, nine or ten years ago. So it's open again now. They actually just reopened it, but now it's transitional housing for homeless people. So people trying to go from the street to Section Eight, they can um, actually go to the plaza and like get a room. And um, it's not a sober living house, so they don't they don't have to be sober. Um, I think there's a rule about having guests or whatever, mm-hmm. but um, um, it's a good resource for people that need help if they're willing to follow the rules. My Uncle Dave, if you want to talk Uncle Dave, he was talking to me about one of the that hotel and he said, No thank you. He's like, I saw that room. He's like, I already been in jail. I don't need to go back. 
<laughs> and like, yeah, the rooms are tiny. I mean, they're yeah. tiny, but I mean, a roof over your head. Yeah. I guess it just depends on you know what you're willing to mm-hmm. whatever. But so that's going to be happening for the next five years, and then they're they're knocking it down. So I know for a while the caravan's been like kind of a, a, a place of music. You know, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of local music gigs are happening. Actually, yeah. right now one of the one of the few ones in downtown. Yeah, a lot of it has been shutting down. So the caravan's like the the last. One of, one of there's yeah. a I mean I, I a lot of the music places are really uh, genre specific like you know right. cafe stretch it's very heavy jazz yeah you know um, so yeah the in terms of playing harder rock punk and metal downtown um, you've got us you've got the Ritz um, back bar sofa mm-hmm. does like rock and metal shows and other than that it's like slim pickings you know right. what I mean SLG art boutique throw shows but they they do focus on a lot of like um, like alternative stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is totally fine, but like so the harder stuff it's it's hard to find spots right. in San Jose. And I took the booking over when I took night shift over about about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And I did it for or nine yeah, nine years ago. I did it for four years. And then when I got pregnant with my kid, uh, when I went on maternity leave, Phil took it over and he did it for about two years and then I took it over again about a year and a half ago. Now at what point did what was the decision making and bringing comedy that was my decision um probably had been missing it <laughs> for sure you know being nostalgic bring, bring the mountain to muhammad kind of a thing um atu um who i did not know very well um i think he was running the britannia arms he right? was running the brit and i i had done his mic a couple times and and liked it i mean it's that's a hard room because it's so big it's so long and then you've got so much competition with tvs and stuff like that but um he ran that thing for like a good four years and he posted on facebook that that it was ending and um there are all these times in my life where an idea pops in my head and i just act on it immediately and every single time it's worked out to my benefit and when i saw his post i messaged him right away and i offered him the caravan mm-hmm. and um and that was it that was history and now he's like one of my favorite people on the planet so yeah. very lucky to have atu in my life real man you know mm-hmm. all his stuff you know he's he's um men that believe in service to the community, men that believe in trying, or people, I should say, but like trying, trying to enforce change, you know, he's very, uh, he does a lot of work with bail reform. He's, you know, mm-hmm. very politically active with, um, Stan San Jose, um, and, um, teaches these things, this ethos to his child, you know, um, that's aside from the comedy, you know, but, and, and also, you know, helps people give a leg up and keeps the room going. That's a hard room to run. Like, it's, it's hard, and he does it every week. You know, he goes in and he, he bangs out. I mean, we usually have between, I would say we it's usually about 30 comics, would you say? Yeah. So It's filled up fast. It fills up fast, and it's, you know, and we are starting later now. We've somehow turned into the late night mic, which I kind of like. So, But 10 to one thirty is still a three-and-a-half-hour show. So it's it's a lot, you know. Um, Was it a smooth transition to bring in comedy? It, it was not. No, it was not. Everyone thought I was crazy. What were and, some of the challenges? Um, well, first of all, um, the first night, you know, the place was packed. Packed. And um, I don't think people quite knew what to expect. And we had not great sound. <laughs> we had, like, one shitty speaker and, like, not a good mic, you know. Uh-huh. 
Um, I would say probably for the first year we did not have great sound. And so that was definitely something that held us back. It's way better now. I, I feel it could be better than, than it is now, but at least you can, you can hear the comics, which is good. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was a hard, um, it was a hard sell. People weren't used to coming in and having to pay attention, you know? And so, um, but you know, now here we are four years later, people come in for the show. There's an audience that comes every week for the show Mm -hmm. and it's the, um, sales are exactly where they need to be. We're chugging right along. It's doing good. So, um, I'm really pleased. (laughs) I'm really pleased that it worked out because I having, having a place to work out, it's important for comics and especially, you know, an environment that you're comfortable and used to, you know, even though you need to learn to bang it out in any room, Mm-hmm. having those certain rooms that are there for you consistently, I feel is like important as a performer. Yeah. Well, a place to work out and a place to just hang out with other comedians yeah. and, and network. And for ho- sure. hopefully they can do it outside, you know? Yeah. Most well, <laughs> well, won't hope. But. <laughs> and I think, especially since you reached your fourth year, yeah. it's like another important thing about uh, is comedy is longevity. Mm-hmm. I think the, suffer so from what I observe the average uh, li- life term of a open mic it's like a year in the six months yeah I was gonna so, say like, like six months a year, year less yeah they die quick and considering that you know right now that, that PB News has Woodhams and a Caravan mm-hmm. and I got for Scotty yeah we're, we're like a year behind yeah which I was really shocked I yeah you guys swore. are on three years now yeah but I was for my head because I guess I started doing comedy Maybe halfway through your first year, I must have been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but when I went in there, I could have swore that comedy has been going at the caravan for like five years or ten years. Yeah, I yeah. really thought it was like a institution already. Oh, okay, so, well it's starting to be yeah. for sure. <laughs> and, for sure. Uh, but yeah. Well, Rachel, we, we reached the hour. Yeah, awesome. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, for sharing. thank you. I, I think I think it was very insightful and and. You're awesome. You're I, I, awesome. I, I think, I think, before we go, because this, this is all my mind. What's if anything, this is my starting question. Cause, okay. Because I, I, I just want to know. And I'm because in some ways you can speak on behalf of other br- of bartenders that work comedy nights. It's <laughs> like, are you judgmental of comedians not buying drinks? And like, <laughs> I've been guilty of that. I mean, I feel bad, but I'm like, you know, especially when you're running like a, a cash only place. Like, yeah. Do, do you feel like there's like a kind of like oh this this oh this guy's here he ain't he you know he ain't buying shit no no i never feel that way i mean first of all a lot of um comics are broke you know (laughs) i mean and that's just part of it you know and and i know that i remember being like super 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 broke um i don't feel like the i mean there is a certain level of the the comics are also customers but i don't feel like they're they're primarily customers and honestly for every five comics that drinks water there's one comic that'll have like eight shots of johnny walker red you know what i mean like yeah it's like tipping for the people that don't tip there's like for every asshole that doesn't tip at all there's somebody that's going to give you five dollars when they don't have to there's Mm -hmm. a balance so for everybody that doesn't buy a drink like there's going to be somebody else that does and it it works out you know what i mean because I felt bad. I have no cash. No. I better stay outside. Don't ever feel bad about just... that. Don't ever feel bad about that. I don't I don't care about that. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter to me. Rachel, it's awesome having you here. Thank yeah, you. thanks, Jorge. Thank you for coming. It was awesome. All right, cool.
You can visit Rachel Warner at the open mic she helped start, and that is the Caravan Lounge on Wednesday nights. I believe they start at 9.30 now. And um, check it out. All right, that's it for this week. Have a great Sunday. Have a great rest of your week. I hope all is well. I hope um, you guys hang in there. You know, some of us are at the edge. So hang in there, bud. Hang in there. Take it one day at a time. All right, that's it. Have a good one. Sayonara. See you next week where our guest is an artist. And she um, turns out to be a, a big deal. And that was a that was an interesting discovery. All right, take it easy.